0: Hey, everybody. Magnus here. Basically, today is the beginning of, well, something new, basically, is what it comes down to. I'm str- I'm, I'm doing something today that I haven't... It's, it's probably not something that I haven't ever done before because... Well, fuck it. I'm going to stop talking in riddles. Basically, what's going on is I'm going to be talking about a movie today. Now, I haven't really talked too much about movies since my infamous Superman 2 episode. I don't think there's been any kind of real discussion about a particular movie since then, right? And that's been, you know, that was a pretty fucking long time ago, right? So, number one, today's going to be all about a movie, my first in quite a while. And because of all of that, because it's been so long, um, my next little series that I'm going to be going through, is it's going to be all about movies, right? And so I've got a bunch of movies picked out, and kind of the the shtick here is that starting with episode number 45, going through episode number 49, I'm going to be talking about movies that I feel have, they've obtained a reputation that they just, very fucking bluntly, they don't deserve, all right? It's really as simple as that. And so my intention for that series is going to be to set the record straight, you know, those movies are not as good as you think they are or for that matter, those movies are a lot better than they get credit for. You know, whatever whatever the the reference point on all that's going to be. And so originally today's movie, Gattaca, was going to be part of that series, but then what I realized was that there is kind of a theme to that series, and Gattaca doesn't fit with it. Because like I said, it's supposed to be... In fact, actually, fuck it. It's not even just movies that people either love and they shouldn't, or they hate and they shouldn't. It's sequels that people love and they shouldn't, or that they hate and they shouldn't. And so basically what I found out, or what I realized, was that Gattaca... Just didn't fit into that, right? So anyway, so I, that's why I'm covering Gattaca here, and then the other movies, the sequels, are going to be. <clears throat> uh, I'm going to talk about that, like I said, and uh, talk about those movies in episodes 45 through 49. Now that's all going to be part of the build-up to my epic, epic, epic 50th episode, and uh, I'm not going to. I'm not going to talk too much about that. I'm just going to kind of keep that to myself. Not really going to tell you too much about what to expect for the historic, amazing, spectacular, just fucking amazing, awesome, cool 50th episode. But yeah, that's what it's going to be. Pretty fucking epic. So um, so that's that. I don't really have a way of ending this particular segment here. So I'm just going to say, here's the theme song.
1: Your attention, please. This
0: is a piece of art.
2: His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun.
1: Dr. Doom wears body to conceal his own magnet form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot fast? Yeah. Who gives a shit? Nerd! It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. <music>
0: Magnus Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and my therapist says I'm addicted to comics, movies, and TV shows. So I fired her and started over again with a new therapist. But enough about me. This, uh, This is episode number 41 for April 29th, 2014. As I look back on things, something that's become very apparent to me is that Most of the conversation that I've had for this podcast has revolved around comics. It's true, but my mantra from the get-go has been comics, movies, and TV shows. Now, I've noticed how people have interpreted this to mean that everything I talk about on Trennis Magnus Punches Reality will have some sort of comic book origin to it. Nothing could be further from the truth. Take today for instance. Today we'll be talking about Gattaca, the science fiction film from 1997 that basically nobody saw, and yet it's one of my favorite films of all time. Now my origin story with Gattaca is actually pretty straightforward. Like all the rest of you, I completely missed out on it when it was in theaters. and. I'm sad to report that Gattaca got the shit beaten out of it by fucking I Know What You Did Last Summer. This would've made me weep for my generation, just even thinking about it now, but let's face it, my generation has made choices a lot dumber than that. I won't get specific, but ignoring Gattaca is kind of a snowflake and a blizzard of stupidity for my generation, but anyway. As I say, my origin story with Gattaca is simple enough. Didn't see it in theaters and didn't see it on home video. What happened was I was sick with mono for the start of my second semester of my senior year in high school. Now, I've talked a little bit about that in the past. and I think it was in my, my Young Justice episode, maybe? Sounds right. But anyway, I ended up coming down with Satan's own case of mono. I mean, it was just fucking horrible. I had every fucking symptom in the book, and it was only after I was given a clean bill of health that my doctor told me that he surprises all fuck that I'm still alive, because he said people that have the same kind of skinny build that I do usually can't take that severe case of mono, and he's seen it kill people before. So this may be TMI for some of you, but I promise it all leads back to the main topic, but among shitloads of other symptoms, one huge problem I had was, shall we say, a liver problem, right? Basically, it was, a, it was an enlarged liver. It was swollen. I forget what the details were. But basically, what happened was the doctor said that I had to take it easy. If I exerted myself too much, my liver would rupture, and I'd probably be dead in about 15 minutes. And that could happen if I walked around too much or if I lifted something heavy. Hell, if I just got really pissed off about something, boom. That could be it. Lights out. If you wonder what the odds are or were of me losing my temper, what those those odds might have been, keep in mind, I was a teenage ginger. Anyway, miracle of miracles, my liver made a full recovery along with the rest of me. But one side effect of all this was that I had to stay home from school for something like two months. I shit you not. Two fucking months. And that's basically how I spent the first part of 1999. Sitting alone in my room with a fucking sky-high fever. More pain than I could medicate without killing myself and other problems. And, And in a lot of ways, it was a... It was a big learning experience because a teacher from the school would come out to my house twice a week to drop off new homework, pick up old homework, and all that shit. Now, I use the term teacher loosely because this chick didn't know her asshole from her elbow about basically any of the subjects I was taking. And people, it's not like these were very complicated subjects either. I mean, that semester... I believe I had economics, English, math for dumbass seniors who need another math credit in order to graduate, theater arts, and intro to business finance. Now, the intro to business thing could be a podcast unto itself, should you not. And you know what, maybe someday it will be. But for now, let me just say that I only needed it just to fill out my schedule. The state of Texas said that seniors of my description had to take at least six classes. Intro to Business was my sixth class. Oh, and if you were counting toes up there, you realize that's only five classes. You see, I got dropped from my PALS class because of my fucking mono. It was just too big a risk to take. So, got dropped from PALS, but that would have been the sixth class. Anyway, so that idiot couldn't help me with any of my work. Not that I needed very much help anyway, but if I did she wouldn't have been in any use, the fucking Nimrod. But yeah, like I said, it was a learning experience because I came to realize that at least 80% of your time in school is an abject fucking waste. I knocked out all my work within just mm, two hours as compared to spending six or seven hours at school or whatever it was when I was a senior. So that meant a lot of downtime. And it made basically every night a blockbuster night, pretty much. I watched all kinds of shit on TV. The, the This was the first few weeks and months of 1999, so there were plenty of nanny reruns to choose from. Jerry Springer was steadily in his decline in popularity at that point, I think. And The Truman Show was playing on, on HBO every five seconds to remind audiences across America that Jim Carrey shouldn't be trusted with dramatic material. Shouldn't. Should not. So, one particularly bad evening, I plopped down on the couch to watch some TV, and Gattaca started. I didn't know anything about Gattaca. I mean, I'd heard the name, but really couldn't tell you a damn thing about the plot, the cast, or too much of anything else. Eh, fuck it, why not? So, I watched it. Now, before I continue on with this, I need to tell you that by this point in my recovery, I hadn't really slept in something like a week. I mean, time kind of blurs together after a while, but I swear to think I hadn't slept more than a total, a cumulative, of 12 hours in something like 5 days. And I would actually be shocked if it was even that much. The reason for that was because of the fever. I couldn't crank the AC high enough to compensate for my temperature. The sucker just did not get cold enough. So, good luck trying to sleep during that bullshit. Anyway, so when you're that sleep-deprived, de- sleep seriously weird shit starts happening. It's like every single nerve in your body becomes exposed. It hurts well, it hurts basically to be alive, you lose all your faculties to deal with even simple things, and pretty much you're sort of a basket case. So, plop down on the couch to watch Gattaca after taking pretty much full doses of all my prescriptions just like the doctor ordered, and I think that's a good way of setting the stage for the summary of Gattaca. In the not-too-distant future, eugenics in the form of conceiving improved children by genetic manipulation is common, and DNA plays the primary role in determining social class. A genetic registry database uses biometrics to instantly identify and classify those so created as valids, while those conceived by traditional means and more susceptible to genetic disorders are derisively known as invalids. Genetic discrimination is forbidden by law, But in practice, genotype profiling is used to identify valids to qualify for professional employment while invalids are relegated to menial jobs. Vincent Freeman is conceived naturally without the aid of genetic selection. Immediately after his birth, his DNA is tested and indicates he has high probability of developing mental disorders, will be myopic, has a heart defect, and his projected life expectancy is only 30.2 years. His parents regret their decision, and their next son, Anton, is conceived with the aid of genetic selection. Anton surpasses his older brother in many aspects, including in a game that they call Chicken. Both swim out to sea, and the first to give up and swim back to shore is the loser. Anton always wins due to his superior physical stamina. Vincent dreams of a career in space, but is constantly reminded of his genetic inferiority. Later, as young adults, Vincent challenges Anton to the game of chicken. This time it's Vincent who pulls ahead while Anton runs into trouble and begins to drown. Vincent saves him, then leaves home shortly thereafter. Due to frequent screening, Vincent faces genetic discrimination and prejudice. The only way he can achieve his dream of becoming an astronaut is to become a a borrowed ladder, a person who impersonates a valid with a superior genetic profile. He assumes the identity of Jerome Eugene Morrow, a former swimming star with a A genetic quotient second to none, who had been injured in a car accident, leaving him paralyzed from the waist down. Vincent buys Jerome's identity and uses his valid DNA in blood, hair, tissue, and urine samples to pass screening. To keep his identity hidden, he must meticulously groom and scrub down daily to remove his own genetic material. With Jerome's genetic profile, Vincent gets accepted into the Gattaca Aerospace Corporation, the most prestigious spaceflight conglomerate with a DNA test being the entire interview process. He becomes Gattaca's top celestial navigator and is selected for a manned spaceflight to Saturn's moon Titan. A week before Vincent is to leave on the one-year mission, one of Gattaca's administrators is found bludgeoned to death in his office. People discover an eyelash of the real Vincent on the premises, making him the prime suspect. A paper cup used by Vincent is also found after he gave it to Caesar, the cleaner. Vincent must evade increasing security measures as his launch date approaches. Simultaneously, he becomes close to one of his co-workers, Irene Cassini. Although she's a valid, Irene knows she will only ever be picked for lesser missions due to slightly elevated risk of heart failure. Romantically attracted to Vincent, she clandestinely has what she thinks is his DNA analyzed. The results confirm that he's out of her league, leaving her wistful, but Vincent makes it plain that he doesn't care about her genetics. Jerome, generally known as Eugene, also suffers from the burden of his genetic perfection. When he won only a silver medal in an important competition, he became increasingly depressed. While intoxicated, Jerome confesses that he did not have a car accident, but rather had attempted suicide by jumping in front of a car, but only paralyzed himself from the waist down. After numerous close calls, Vincent's identity is revealed to a shocked Irene, yet Irene comes to see Vincent for who he is and accepts him. The murder investigation abruptly comes to a close with Mission Director Joseph under arrest. The director reveals that he murdered the administrator because the victim was trying to cancel the Titan mission. As Vincent appears to be in the clear, he's confronted by the youthful chief detective, who's revealed to be Anton. Anton accuses Vincent of fraud and asserts that Vincent is unworthy of his place at Gattaca. Vincent reminds Anton of how he's made it thus far solo, and that it was Anton who needed saving before, not himself. Having realized the competition he lost, Anton challenges Vincent again. They swim out where Anton asks Vincent how he beat him before. Vincent explains that he never saved anything for the swim back. Anton turns back first, but loses his way and Vincent again rescues him, this time by celestial navigation. As the day of the launch arrives, Jerome bids Vincent farewell. He reveals that he's stored enough genetic samples to last Vincent two lifetimes. Overwhelmed and grateful, Vincent thanks Jerome, but Jerome replies that it's he who should be grateful since Vincent lent Jerome his dreams. Jerome gives Vincent a card, but asks him not to open it until he reaches space. As Vincent moves through the Gattaca complex to the launch site, he's caught out by an unexpected last urine test. However, Lamar, the doctor, is unperturbed. He tells Vincent about his son who's a great fan of Vincent's and wants to apply to Gattaca. Lamar goes on to say, Unfortunately, my son's not all that they promised. He then ignores the test result and tells Vincent to make his flight. Jerome climbs inside his home incinerator, puts on his silver medal, and lights the fire. The rocket lifts off with Vincent and he opens the card from Jerome to find no words, just a hair sample. He's saddened to leave despite nevering never having a place in the world he muses for someone who was never meant for this world I must confess I'm suddenly having a hard time leaving it of course they say every atom in our bodies was once part of a star maybe I'm not leaving maybe I'm going home and that's how the movie ends now I totally admit that maybe it was all my prescriptions that made me cry. Maybe it was the total lack of sleep. Maybe it was the realization that the dystopia shown in Gattaca is probably inevitable in mankind's future, but all around, this movie punched me right in the balls. Admittedly, it's a pretty dicey topic, for some reason. Apparently, preferring a society that puts a premium on non-discrimination and the rights of the individual especially in light of the bloody history of eugenics, makes you some kind of wacko extremist. I don't know. Couldn't tell you. But beyond all that, I dig the sort of sci-fi, technoir aspects of the movie. Gattaca was a pretty low-budget movie overall, so the filmmakers had to be selective about how much technology they really show you. But they imply enough technology to really get the imagination working as to the marvels and wonders of this more technologically advanced society. And, of course, there are the actors. I've always liked Uma Thurman, and I really can't think of a single movie I've ever seen her in where I thought she was absolutely horrible. If you want to listen to me justify that and find out just how fucking far that policy goes go check out the second episode where I defend Batman and Robin from all critics. But, anyway, the obvious champs here are Ethan Hawke and Jude Law. Up to then, I'd always liked Ethan Hawke, but he'd never really done too much of anything that really impressed me. But he brings it here. Vincent Freeman is hes a man with a dream, and he has the will to do whatever it takes to make it come true. And once upon a time, those things alone would have been all he needed to succeed in life. But in his time and place, it's all about genetics. Beyond all that, Vincent's enterprising and willing to break the rules. He's a nonconformist trapped in in a world of artificial genetic order. But he's not discouraged by the odds. There's always some new trick to break the rules or some way around obstacles. Vincent's creative in ways that his world just doesn't value anymore. But beyond all that, Vincent's the dirty little secret of modern society. He's the walking embodiment of everything the Valids fear about themselves. That despite their education, their supposed perfection, their genetic tinkering, they're all only human, and it's absolutely possible for someone with none of their advantages to outwit, outsmart, and outperform them all. Society. Society's created an artificial standard of perfection and then imposed that upon everybody. One size fits all, no matter how uncomfortably. Vincent and who knows how many other people just like him are proof that the valids don't have a monopoly. On excellence. The supreme irony, though, comes when the lead FBI agent is revealed to be Vincent's brother Anton. Gattaca employees and technicians are the best of the best of the very best. If you can make it at Gattaca, you can make it anywhere. Anton, for all his supposed genetic superiority, for all the pride his dipshit father had in his artificial creation... Anton's a, r- a relatively lowly FBI agent. It's an important job, to be sure, but in the social hierarchy, there's simply no comparison, ever, between a Gattaca trained astronaut and some asswipe FBI agent. Case in point the Bureau's murder investigation at Gattaca proceeds only because Director Joseph permits it. Legal or not, Joseph clearly feels feels within his rights to tell the FBI to go fuck themselves when their when their investigation starts intruding on Gattaca's day-to-day efficiency. This is reinforced when the real Jerome Morrow gets pushed around by an FBI agent. Jerome displays an aristocrat's moral outrage and arrogance by shouting at the F- at the agent for for questioning him. And note that the agent immediately backs off and shuts the fuck up when he thinks he's talking to someone from Gattaca. But there's more. There's a contrast to Vincent. Irene, Vincent's girlfriend, is a conformist. She's a conformist in her job, she's a conformist in her thinking, and she'd be the last one to to buck the established order. In the larger social scheme of things, Irene isn't the best. Not even close. But she, for damn sure, isn't the worst. No, the worst are the invalids. And maybe Irene's reached a point where she figures she can be complacent. She knows that she's gone about as far as she can. But for people like Vincent, the sky's the limit. For people like Irene, the best they can hope for is to watch while the invalids scrub their floors. Anyway, so Irene has Vincent's DNA sequenced, and she unknowingly uses Jerome's samples to do it. And once she gets the results back, she's disappointed. And not because Jerome's a letdown, but because he's so far ahead of her that she's not worth his time. Again, she's a conformist. The fact that Vincent chooses to date her anyway means the world to her. Irene's situation is what it is. She's capable of a lot of shit. She's an asset to Gattaca. But at the same time, she knows she'll never be on a manned space flight to Titan. She knows it. And in a weird kind of way, it's interesting that it means something to him, too. Vincent's first love was, is, and will always be the stars. Space travel. Exploration. The final frontier. All that shit. Think about that for a minute. Irene's probably the only halfway serious girlfriend he's ever had. I mean, a guy like Vincent, he's probably gotten laid a few times, but a real girlfriend? When's he ever had the time? Between traveling all over the place looking for work as an invalid and later conning his way into Gattaca with Jerome's help, you have to figure Vincent's probably never had a real relationship before. But Irene is probably the first real link to the world that Vincent's ever had. Obviously, even his friendship with Jerome isn't enough to keep Vincent in this world, but oddly enough, neither is Irene. Irene unquestioningly accepts Vincent. She chooses him over her professional obligations and even the fucking law. She lies for Vincent. She covers up for him, even fucks him After she watches him beat the snot out of an FBI agent. But Vincent is obsessed. He never even considers staying on Earth. Not for Irene. Not for Jerome. Not for anybody. Nobody. Ever. Literally, the subject is never even fucking broached between the two of them. Because Irene already knows what the answer is going to be. So why ask the question? Irene represents the first real shot at enfranchisement in the, system, in the system that Vincent's ever been offered. If he sticks with her, yeah, he'll never go into outer space. But he'll have love and acceptance from another human being he literally has never experienced before. But the prospect of it isn't enough to keep him on Earth. It's not even a temptation moving on to other things. What works for me is how this sci-fi alternate reality has been carefully thought out. A society obsessed with genetic perfection is invariably going to have invalids like Vincent who are desperate to game the system so that they can get ahead. And so there logically would be valids who have their own agendas to help them do it. And there'd be slime balls like the one who pairs Vincent up with Jerome to profit by it. But there are other things too. The shady parts of town have anonymous genetic sequencing kiosks which analyze DNA samples. Really for any number of reasons. Romantic matchups, background checks, all kinds of shit. Something else is the supposed low-life clubs dotting the landscapes establishments like these are considered dives only because of their clientele otherwise they they seem like you know really nice and kind of swanky restaurants and these are the places where invalids and the unwanted of society can enjoy a nice night out on the town apparently though it's not uncommon for the fbi to raid such places looking for crime suspects the invalids are They're just used to being pushed around. It's what they expect. You see, the possibility of valids committing crimes seems to not be much of a consideration for anybody. The usual suspects are always the invalids. When the FBI goons stormed that swank nightclub, the people ran for the exits very quickly. Instinctively. They've done this before. They're used to their dinners and parties being interrupted by law enforcement officials looking for suspects rather than actual perps. There's one scene in particular in Gattaca that'll always stay with me. Actually, there, there are shitloads of them, but the one I want to talk about right now is the bit where Vincent and Jerome have dinner together to celebrate Vincent's passing the interview. Which, incidentally, was nothing more than giving a genetically acceptable piss sample. Anyway. They just play off each other really well. They started out, in, the, in their story, barely even being roommates. But over time, they've really become friends. And this scene is a helpful way of showing that. It's one of the few times in the movie where they don't outright fucking resent each other. They truly do like one another, but at the same time, there's no pressing conflict that's weighing on them at the moment. It's just a light, quiet, carefree dinner before the shit really hits the fan later on in the movie. Now, Gattaca, as a movie, has a fair amount of narration to it. Not to the point where it becomes distracting but it's not selective like kind of like annoying little bookends like the the Raimi Spider-Man films. Frankly, sometimes narration becomes a crutch for the filmmaker to use when someone in the creative food chain didn't do his or her job very well but that's not what happens with Gattaca. Narration is used when it needs to be used otherwise there's no narration. And it's rare for filmmakers to trust the to trust the audience to interpret the story the way just by themselves so I always appreciate it when they do another kind of neat thing is the plot construction this is one of those things that actually makes the movie fun on the rewatch is just seeing how close the adult Vincent and Anton come to meeting each other before they actually do. It could have happened several times, and it's just dumb luck that it never happened. So, anyway. Now, there's some odd... I don't know if I should call it symbolism, so much as maybe thematic reinforcement, but a lot of haze made out of Vincent's name. Vincent Freeman's name. He was originally supposed to be named Anton... But his father wanted to save that name for a son that he could be proud of. So, Vincent was named Vincent instead. He later buys the name, Jerome Morrow. But the fucking names don't, don't even matter. He's an invalid. The only thing that counts is his blood. In terms of the not-so-subtle symbolism, I'm, I'm pretty sure that all the stairways in this movie are spiraled like a DNA helix. And it's kind of obvious, but at the same time, this society's obsession with genetics and science affects even their architecture, it seems. I can't be the first one to point that out, but there it is. The The one major criticism that I'd have about this movie is that the premise is, not in a way, it's kind of self-defeating. Vincent would have been barred from aeronautical travel because of his heart condition. The thing is, health issues like that are perfectly reasonable causes to reject an astronaut's application. Now, yes, I realize that the moral of the story in this case outweighs the logic of the plot mechanics, and in a film like this, that's, that's probably unavoidable, but at the same time, I do think it care should've and could've been taken to give Gattaca, as an institution, more of an unfair prejudice to reject Vincent's application. As it stands now, they have a fairly reasonable cause to turn Vincent away, and it's specifically because of his heart. If his heart gives out in the middle of a space mission, he could endanger the lives of his crew, and himself, because I seriously doubt they have the facilities to treat him properly on a fucking space shuttle. So he's risking not only his own life, which is bad enough, but he could take other people down with him. Now, I realize he has a dream, and that's admirable, but at the same time, fulfilling your dreams shouldn't pose a danger to anybody else. Had Vincent's heart been solid as a rock and... Gattaca's official hiring policy been to deny all in-utero birth applicants, or maybe some other prejudicial criteria, you could completely absolve Vincent for his dishon- for his dishonesty while at the same time further indicting Gattaca for unfair dis- and discriminatory hiring practices. All's I'm saying is that Gattaca, they were within their rights and due diligence when it comes to Vincent's heart problem, and That ultimately works to undermine Vincent's personal integrity, and to some degree, the the film's message as well. But like I said, there's a higher point that's being made here. There's a theme that's being carried out of the inevitable triumph of the human spirit versus the cold detachment of artificial perfection. The inherent wonder of unpredictability versus the arbitrary complacency of institutionalized monotony. And then there's the more literal condemnation of eugenics as a reproductive practice. Honestly, that shouldn't need any embellishment from me. It's bluntly articulated in the text. So, if you still can't see it, I guess go watch something more heavy-handed, like a Chris Nolan movie or something, because I don't know what to tell you. Bottom line, this is one of my favorite films of all time. It's definitely in my top 20. No doubt about it. Gattaca will always have a spot on my DVD shelf. If you don't own it, buy it. And if you haven't seen it, fuck's sake, see it. And don't listen to anything I've said before now, because I don't want to spoil anything for you. Anyway, so there it is. I think that just about does it for Gattaca, my first ever movie retrospective. And, of course, it's awesome. Because I'm awesome. So, yeah. Time for me to take a break. Be right back after these messages. Or massages or whatever I end up doing. Anyway, be back soon and stuff.
1: If you like strange pop culture, if you like obscure stuff that you wish you'd have heard of years ago and you don't know what it is, if you like just that kind of stuff, old radio, um, obscure, unmarketable pop culture, uh, strange chiptune music, um, all sorts of things like that can be found on the Quake Reversal satellite on Overnightscape Underground at O N S U G dot com. It's an amazing show at an amazing place full of uh, strange and unmarketable internet transmissions. Hours and hours and days and just O N S U G dot com. Take a look around and I bet you you'll find something.
3: Oh my god, I'm J. David Weeder. I haven't podcasted for 36 hours. I need to make a podcast. I have to do this. Maybe something Golden Age. I need a partner. Golden Age, Podcast Obsessed. Got it. John's John's Toilets and Toiletries. John, we need to make a new podcast. A new podcast? I haven't podcasted in a whole day. I need a new podcast. Well, I've been listening to a lot of David Bowie lately. Let's do Starman and his Golden Age adventures. Ooh, who, who was the artist on Starman? Was that Jack Burnley? Yes, we should cover Jack Burnley's run on Adventure Comics and Starman. Okay, I have just the perfect guy because I know another guy who loves Jack Burnley. So let me call Charlie Neymar and see if we can get him on a three-way here. Hi, what's up? Charlie. Charlie. Right? Ah. We need you to do a limited series podcast monthly at starmanobservatory.blogspot.com.
2: Are you available? Uh, monthly? Well, uh, Starman, that's Jack Burnley, right? Oh, heck yes, I'm available.
3: This podcast is Go! The Starman Observatory, covering Starman's Golden Age adventures. Monthly at starmanobservatory.blogspot.com Wow, I'm
2: really glad I decided to pony up and take my wife to Italy for her birthday. The food, the sights, the atmosphere, it's all just so perfect. Too bad I had to ask if there was a comic book shop located at the Vatican. Uh, maybe it wasn't the brightest thing to do on her birthday, but granted, I'm certain I've done things way more foolish than that.
4: Good afternoon.
2: Gah! Where did you come from and who the heck are you?
4: My name is Dufo De Manzo where I come from is none of your concern. What is of your concern is that I have an offer to make of you, an offer that you should not refuse.
2: Uh, oh, okay. What is it?
4: I have listened to your podcasts, and it just so happens that I am in the podcasting business myself. Someday I will ask a favor of you, one that I hope you will repay to me in good faith. When you do so... You will become a part of my family, and your show will prosper along with it.
2: Oh, well, that sounds great. Oh, what do I need to do?
4: You will know when the time is right. Until then, I wish you and your lovely wife the happiest of
2: times in my fair country. Uh oh, okay. Cool. Some time has passed. And that does it for another episode of Just One of the Guys. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and I'll catch you all next week.
4: Bravo. Bravo.
2: God, How the hell did you find me, and uh, how did you get in my house?
4: Do not worry yourself with such trivial matters. I have seen your work with this podcast, and I have come to accept the favor that is owed to me.
2: Uh, But you never said what you wanted from me.
4: That is true, so let me restate it now. Wait, what? I have started up a brand new podcasting venture entitled Two True Freaks. I am setting them up with their own website, twotruefreaks.com, and I am gathering up podcasts such as yours that have gained my favor to become a part of the Two True Freaks podcast network. I will do the honor of putting the Just One of the Guys on the Two True Freaks network, And in return, our debt will be settled.
2: Oh, okay. Hey, wait, what debt?
4: Do you accept my offer?
2: Uh, sure. I mean, does this mean I'll get paid for the show finally? No. Oh, okay. Well, does it mean I'll get some cannoli?
4: Of course. The DiManzo family originated cannoli. In fact, we are known the world over for our stuffing of creamy fillings in the tubes. Come check you out know, Just of One of the Guys
2: know, every Friday at truefreaks.com
1: You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about four-dollar new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost a hundred bucks to collect. Join me in the quarter bin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarter Bin podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky podcast network. Visit us at RelativelyGeekyPodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast on iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny.
0: Okay, we're back now, and I've got a little bit of feedback to go through here. This first email, and actually only email, uh, comes from Tom Panarese, dated February the 17th, the subject line of which is The Big Book Report. Now, for those of you who don't know, Tom Panarese is the host of the In Country podcast, as well as Taking Flight, a, a podcast about Dick Grayson, and then also Pop Culture Affidavit, which. I'm not sure what the title of that tells you, but it's basically a podcast that's all about pop culture. So, In Country is a podcast that's it's all about the Marvel uh, comics, The Nom. And then, you know, the other two I've, I think i pretty much talked about. But, all due respect to Tom, I, you know, but we all have just a certain amount of hours in any day. And there goes my phone. Just a minute. I'm sure this is just riveting to listen to. Alright, sorry. I just basically received a a text message, and so... Gotta turn that thing off. Thought I already muted that, actually. Anyway, riveting listening, I'm sure. So, anyway. um, We all only have so many hours in the day uh, to spend listening to uh, podcasts and stuff, and so, Tom, all due respect, I just... I really don't have the time to listen to... Uh, in country or taking flight and so now one of the kind of nice things about any podcast is that by and large they're not going anywhere so you never know what the future may bring but you know just hope you don't take it uh, personally that I don't listen to uh, uh, in country or taking flight I'm sure they're all you know top quality podcasts don't get me wrong it's just it's really a time issue for me but I have to tell you Pop Culture Affidavit is one of the best podcasts that's going right now. Like I said, the the entire idea of it is that uh, Tom basically talks about just different pop culture knickknacks. You know, particular movies or certain filmmakers or certain soundtracks. I mean, shit. In one episode, uh, he did a uh, uh, he did a show that was basically dedicated to the works of. Now I'm blanking on the uh, director's... uh, Savage Steve Holland, right? And uh, he and Michael Bailey from Views from the Long Box actually uh, dove into that. And that is... That was a great fucking show. So my point in all this is that if you're not listening to at least pop culture affidavit, you're only hurting yourself. So anyway, uh, whatever it's worth coming from me, I think it's a great show. It's one of the best uh, uh, of all the shows that I listen to. That one is definitely definitely one of the best so anyway so this email from tom entitled the big book report uh tom writes trennis i've been a late comer to the podcast and still have a lot of catching up to do but i just finished listening to the three big uh uh three big book report episodes you recorded with Chris Honeywell and wanted to drop you a line about how excellent they were. So let me put this on pause and say, hey, uh, Tom, thank you very much. I appreciate that. I mean, coming from you, that that really is solid praise. So I appreciate uh, the compliment there. To get back into uh, Tom's email. He writes, These episodes scratched an itch that I didn't realize was there because they made me remember how fascinating I've always found urban legends, conspiracies, and the like. Your talks and some of the stories brought up great memories of visiting my public library during my junior high school years and checking out books like Time Life's Mysteries of the Unknown and the UFO Almanac or whatever else was available in those pre-internet days. I can't say if I ever believed any of the stuff I read, but I always loved how those books always contained some great stories, true or not. I want to put this on pause and say, you know, that's actually one of the um, purposes of Getting into well those big books in particular, but the big book series in general. As I I think I've said before that to me, comic books are the greatest format for telling stories, even nonfiction stories, which the big book line tends to be. I mean, even if it's about fictional material, it's still the nonfiction reality of it. So if that makes any sense. So, I love superheroes, got nothing against them, but I've always been of the belief that comic books can be so much more than superheroes, and to me, Prosecution's Exhibit A is always going to be uh, the DC Paradox Press line of big books. I mean, basically, anybody can find those, and damned if they're not fun to read, and I don't care what the subject is, they're always fun to read, and so whether it's conspiracy theories or the hoaxes or losers or uh, urban legends or just whatever it is, it's always going to be fun and interesting. And the reason I wanted to bring uh, Chris Honeywell into this is, number one, I knew beyond any shadow of a doubt that I needed some kind of a co-host if I wanted to be able to tackle the uh, big book series. There's no way I could handle all that stuff all on my own. It's just not possible. The other thing is that, obviously, the big book series kind of lends itself to eh, discussion and interaction and you can tell stories and you can go on tangents and all this other stuff and so there was that to think about but maybe most obviously of all the reason I wanted to bring Chris Honeywell into it was because not in a snooty sort of way but he I don't think he has the same taste for superhero comics that necessarily I do or that other people do that's not me criticizing him, and it's him not criticizing superhero comics. It's just it's a reality, right? And so it kind of felt like of all of the podcasters out there that I know about, he's sort of the obvious choice to do the big book uh, series with me, and so that's why he's the permanent co-host. I'm not, I'm not going to record that, that show with anyone else. Um, now, there may be circumstances where we bring in a third person, but I'm not going to record unless Chris is available uh, to participate. So it's really that simple. And um, that's pretty much that. Now as to... i got to tell say the actual truth of some of this stuff... When I was a kid, I sort of found it... I found it kind of easy. To, uh, I, I, I don't think I really did a good job of explaining this in the Conspiracies episode, but... When I was a kid, I actually found it kind of easy to believe that there might have been a conspiracy to kill John F. Kennedy. And the reason for that is because I think children have really no, no bullshit filter, you know? And basically what it came down to was that people who sounded smart and seemed smart and all of that stuff I don't know, they just, I thought they made a a pretty persuasive argument when I was, you know, 11, 12, 13 years old, right? The older I get, though, I don't it's just the complexities of life start catching up with you. And one of the things that you kind of have to realize after a while is that... ...wanting to uh, uh, kill John F. Kennedy is one thing, but that's the President of the United States, and I'm sorry for blackmail, or for profit, or for conscience, or for forgiveness, or whatever else, sooner or later, somebody would blow the whistle. Alright? Somebody would come clean and say, yeah, this is basically what happened. Now, some people want to presume that um, E. Howard Hunt did something like that on his deathbed, and honestly, whatever the fuck it was he was confessing to, it's so unclear that you could basically, you could as easily argue that he's confessing to the Lincoln assassination, you know? So I don't really consider that to be a deathbed confession, right? And it just seems to me that by now, we would have a deathbed confession. Somebody would have, like I said, if for nothing else, they would have gotten religion and come clean by now. And really, nobody has credibly made any kind of real confession. Uh, They haven't implicated people. No one... I mean, there have been no names named. And so, to me, it's just... After all of this time, there's that to consider, the fact that somebody would have... Somebody would have said something by now, right? The other thing is, though, it's just, like, in terms of day-to-day logistics, how the fuck you manage something like that and keep it quiet... I don't know. I... I personally find that actually very tough to believe and as to things like ufos and whatnot same kind of thing now i mean you know we have basically dozens if not hundreds or thousands maybe of photographs uh you know from the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s and all this other shit of of ufos so why you know these days basically everybody carries a video camera with them on their phones and stuff. So why don't we see more of this stuff? Now, I'm already on the record for believing that some kind of unknown flying object exists, all right? I'm I'm on the record with that. But if alien abductions and all the <clears throat> alien abductions and all that other shit was as prevalent as that the UFO crowd would have us believe, I mean, we would have witnesses, people, we would have video, we'd have pictures, stuff just from yesterday, you know? And it, it's just, it's one of those things that I have a kind of hard time convincing myself of, alright? I put it that way. So anyway, get back into Tom's email. He writes, in your conspiracies episode, you guys mentioned the Montauk Project. I had to laugh because growing up on Long Island, this was one that my friend and I used to read about all the time. In fact, we drove out to Montauk to roam around Camp Hero, the supposed site of the project. There wasn't much to see except rundown military buildings, and the scariest part about it was the potential for tetanus for climbing over a chain-link fence and getting busted for trespassing by the state park police. Now, I want to put all this on pause and say, you know, the Montauk project is one of those things that has, at the very least, a germ of credibility to it, and one of... I don't think that was an element of the conspiracies episode, because I don't think it was actually, I don't think that was part of the big book of conspiracies. And I think that's, if that's why we didn't talk about it, or rather, if we didn't talk about it, I think that's why. But that's one of those things that's always sort of interested me, uh, you know, just as a topic and as something that, you know what, may very well have some kind of credibility to it or some basis in reality and truth. So I don't know. But it, it it's one of those things that's always fascinated me too, put it that way. So, Anyway, to get back into uh, Tom's email, though, he writes, I also have to say that I loved your discussion of natural-born killers in the hoaxes episode. Now, it's been 20 years since I saw the film in in the theater, but you guys made me want to see it again, because I'm pretty sure I'll see a lot of what you were talking about in a way that I would never have gotten when I was 17. And I want to put your email on pause here and say that, you know, I'm kind of... I'm kind of there with you, actually, because when I saw, I saw it when I was a freshman in, in high school, right? And I think that's actually when it came out. And um, I have to say, for as blunt and heavy-handed and just kind of over-the-top obvious as I think Oliver Stone was in in directing Natural Born Killers and to whatever degree he rewrote it, I don't know, but to whatever degree, he rewrote Quentin Tarantino's script. To watch it as an adult, it really is just kind of beat you over the head, obvious. I didn't really get it though, when I was a kid, because there was just such this fervor about it, you know, among the media, because they were the ones whose asses were on the line here. I mean, this Natural Born Killers, as you know, I think he and I went to pains to talk about in the Hoaxes episode, it really is a skewering of the media and or news media anyway and they knew that as well as anybody at the time and so whenever the movie finally came out all media attention about it revolved around the scandalous nature of it Uh, how controversial it is how it maybe inspires people to do copycat crimes and go out there and kill people themselves inspires acts of violence and murder and all this other bullshit and you know, as a kid, you know, you're kind of just a, you're, you're subject to the same media cycle as anybody else, but the difference is you don't have an adult's bullshit filter about things, and you really don't have an adult's ability to kind of read between the lines on things and understand that there's actually commentary about society here, or in this case, news media, and that kind of went by me when I was a kid, and again, i I freely admit, I was not a particularly intelligent kid, but I wasn't very stupid either. I'm just saying that I was caught up in the same media cycle as, as anybody else. But flash forward to about 2003, when I actually re-watched... Actually, I didn't re-watch it. What I watched was the uh, director's cut, because I'd never seen that before. All, I, all I'd seen was the uh, theatrical cut. And I guess there's enough characterization there and enough plot there to string together a story. But let's face it, it's really news media that are really being put under the microscope there, and first off, there's Mickey and Mallory's sort of obsession with news media, wanting to be famous and wanting to be profiled on uh, entertainment news, which, fuck, the very existence of those two words in the same sentence is a fucking tragedy, but anyway, wanting to be profiled on entertainment news and all of that, you know, Fluffy Entertainment Tonight shit and all that stuff. And then also, you know, everybody. You know, cops and even the prison warden played by Tommy Lee Jones. Everybody wants their 15 minutes in front of the uh, camera, right? And as an adult, it's easier to see that, you know what, this movie is not about celebrating violence. It's not about worshipping mass murderers or serial killers or any of that other stuff. It's about tearing the media a new asshole because they're the ones who ultimately inspire this shit, right? And so that is a little bit easier to understand when I, when I was 22 and kind of had a little bit more of an adult's sensibilities about things. These were values that I just did not uh, grasp when I was 15. So hopefully that all makes a little bit more sense. But, you know, I just... And and I have to tell you, you know, just uh, on a technical level, I'm gotta pat myself on the back a little bit. I am so fucking proud of that hoaxes episode. I thought it turned out extremely well, especially the natural born killer section because I put a bunch of music and shit in the background that I think actually really worked in terms of what Chris Honeywell and I were talking about. And so I'm just really fucking proud of that. And honestly. I'm not trying to make this sound like a fucking pity party or anything. I haven't really gotten a lot of feedback about that. But I think it turned out just really fucking well. And I'm I'm really proud of it on a technical level. I think it sounds great. I think the discussion is great. I think the the way I mixed in all the music and stuff, I think that's great. And um, anyway, so to get any kind of props for that particular episode, I have to tell you, dude, that's I really appreciate that. Thank you. And so anyway, to get back into Tom's email, he writes, Now, for what it's worth, my go-to movie for, quote, the media is ridiculous and here's why, end quote, is Network, a film I just rewatched a few months ago and still holds up. Now, I'm going to put this back on pause. I've never seen Network. Now, my understanding is that Network is where that that catchphrase, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore, that's where that little catchphrase comes from, the movie Network. Now, I've never seen it. Don't really know a whole lot about I think Faye Dunaway is in it. But otherwise, I just, I don't really know a whole lot about Network. It's one of those things that... I kind of liken it to Apocalypse Now, because when I was a kid, Network and Apocalypse Now, and The Godfather, and, and other things, these were like these big, legendary movies, especially, I think, from the 70s, that people talked about that I just had fucking never seen, right? And Network was one of them. Now, obviously, since then, I've seen network i've seen apocalypse or not network i haven't seen network but i have seen the godfather i have seen apocalypse now and all these other things but i it's just this blind spot in my movie resume i have not seen network and i i mean i kind of want to but at the same time i don't know anyway it's just it's one of those it's one of those movies that that was it, it was never burning a hole in my imagination about wanting to see it and so i guess maybe that's why i haven't seen it so i don't know Anyway, getting back into Panarisa's email, though, finally, your feedback section in the Hoaxes episode made some well-needed points. I chuckled at the crack about San Diego, and honestly, don't understand why fans get so sensitive about wisecracks like that. Well, okay, I do understand. I just don't care. Um, I'm going to put that on pause and say, you know, I can kind of understand too because you know I'm really sensitive about the about this sort of thing. In fact, I was just trading. Uh, comments was somebody, maybe it was Paul Spataro, it was somebody, but um, basically what happened was Scott Gardner posted something on Facebook today, it, I forget the exact quote, but it was it was words to the effect of, wouldn't it be great if news media would cover cons with the same amount of, I don't know, seriousness or thoroughness with as much depth as they do, say, the Olympics, right? And so a lot of people, you know, piped up, yeah, that'd be just great. I'm coming at this from the complete other point of view. I think that would suck, and I'll tell you why. The reason I'm not on board with that, and believe me, this kind of ties in with what we're saying here. The reason I'm not on board with that is because I've seen what happens when news media even acknowledge the existence of cons, all right? And what happens is the people who are at the, the studio wherever the shit's being broadcast from, basically home base, the news desk, whatever you want to call it, they basically say shit like, geeks are invading the city. They're taking over the city for the whole weekend. And aren't we so fucking clever for calling them geeks and calling this an invasion? Because they read funny books about alien invasions. And anyway. And then, of course, there's some asshole correspondent on site. And basically what they do is, they do one of two things. They find the person who has the coolest cosplay outfit there and then they pick on him about about uh, about cosplay or the other on the other extreme they find the stupidest fattest slobbiest smelliest unwashedest just fucking loser there they can possibly find and then they uh, they pick on him ask him questions that basically make him look I mean, they're right up there with do you still beat your wife, you know, in terms of there's no good answer to something like that, right? And it's like, well, why do you hang around with all of these losers at, at these cons and buy all of these overpriced comics and stuff? I mean, doesn't being a loser make you feel kind of bad about yourself? I mean, it's al- questions are almost that fucking bad, all right? And that is just the way that we get treated by news media. Speaking of skewering news media, that's the way those motherfuckers always treat us. It's never gonna change. We're never gonna get their respect. We should fucking stop trying, okay? They are not our friends. They are our enemies. And the minute we lose sight of that as a fan base, we're asking for fucking trouble. And honestly, I do not think mine is the minority opinion here. By the way, that's what I posted on um it was a lot it wasn't anywhere near as rambly as what I just said here, but that's basically what I posted on Scott Gardner's Um Facebook update, right? And honestly, my suspicion is that I do not have the minority opinion on this. Something tells me that a lot of people out there feel the same way I do. And whenever they heard that promo I did about going to um, Wizard World in Austin, there was a promo, basically for those who don't know, there was a promo that I released about um, Wizard World Austin. And I, basically, I and my girlfriend went to that. And that was back in November or something like that. It was frigid fucking cold. It's just, it was fucking unbelievable, really, is what it came down to, all right? Um, it was snowing nonstop. It was windy, not snowing. It was raining nonstop. It was windy nonstop. It was just fucking cold nonstop. It was somewhere in, like, the mid to lower 30s or something like that. It was just fucking miserable. And don't get me wrong. It's a great con. I had, I had a real ball there. And uh, my girlfriend, Stasis Magnus, she... Uh, She went to some kind of Doctor Who simulcast. I don't really keep up with Doctor Who, so I don't really know what the details were. But I do remember the word simulcast getting thrown around, and this was back in November. So if, you know, those of you who know more about Doctor Who than I do, maybe you know what I'm talking about here, because I sure don't. But anyway, so she went to that. And so, you know, fucking, it was a great con. And that was the purpose of my promo, basically saying that all of these guests are going to be there. I'm going to be there. Stasis Magnus is going to be there. And it's just, it's fucking, it's going to be great. It's going to be big and, you know, it's going to be fun. And then I said, as sort of my closing remark, Wizard World Austin, because San Diego is for pussies and hipsters, right? And it was just, you know, basically supposed to be a joke, you know, tee hee hee, uh, Austin represent all this stuff. And, you know, that's really all it was. But some people kind of interpreted that as sort of a fucking shot across the bow, You know, like, who the fuck are you, number one, to make fun of San Diego? And number two, who the fuck are you to make fun of me? You know? Uh, We're all in this together, dude. I mean, why are you bashing on your own? And to be honest with you, no, it's just really supposed to be a joke. It's all in fun. I didn't mean anything by it. For fans, now there are people who are there, Hollywood, for example, that I honestly don't have a whole lot of respect for. But otherwise, uh, the fans who go there... The people who collect comics. Dude, I've got nothing against you. Wasn't bashing on you. I wouldn't bash on you because I'm fucking one of you. So I'm not into that whole self-loathing scene. So there's no way I can bash on you without also bashing on myself. There's fucking no way I'm going to do that. But anyway, like I said, it was supposed to be a joke. Some people misunderstood. And honestly, I understand. You know, because these people, to tie it back to the Facebook update, the thing that I responded to where... I don't think we ever get a good deal from the media. I think most people agree with that, and they're very very—they're as sensitive to that as I do, or as I am. I should say they're as, they're as sensitive to that as I am. And they see the same—the few times that cons ever come up on these newscasts, right? They see that stuff—they see the same news coverage that I do. They see the same people just being mercilessly mocked and harassed that I do— and they're as sensitive to that as I am. And so whenever they, they hear me seemingly making fun of them, too, well, you know what? Maybe they can't do anything about it when a news show makes fun of cons or when, I don't know, the Big Bang Theory makes fun of geeks, which I think they do. If you, if you like that show, whatever. But I'm, I do not think that that show honors geeks or geekdom or fandom or cons or collecting or geek culture or anything, all right? If you like it, great, but you're never going to convince me that it does. So, there you have it. And so, you know, maybe the people who responded to me, maybe they can't respond to anything when they see shit like that on news programs or or when they see Big Bang Theory, but they can absolutely fucking respond to me, and they did. And luckily, I think I mostly diffused the situation, but I understand their outrage because, honestly, I can't say that I wouldn't have reacted any better... If I was listening to some asshole's podcast and he started making fun of San Diego and stuff like that. Anyway, so that's, you know, I I, I agree with you, okay? I understand, and to a degree, I don't really care either. But I see where they're coming from, and I wanted them to understand that, you know, no, I'm not like that. But anyway, so get back into your email, though. And I agree with your point about not going too far into well-worn territory when it comes to podcasting. There are times when... I'm sure that other podcasters and myself will grab the same subject. In fact, Professor Allen and I wound up turning it into a crossover. But overall, I like the idea of talking about or writing about things that don't always get a lot of coverage. And I'm going to put this back on pause and say that, yeah, again, this is another thing that... Another little piece of inspiration, I guess, for the big book report. Because I... No podcast out there, no other podcast going that I know about has talked about the big books. As far as I know, I literally am the only podcast anywhere on the internet that's talking about it. I did a Google search. I, I spent like five or ten minutes on it. It wasn't ex- exactly extreme and in-depth but I did do a little bit of a little bit of research on that and as best I can tell, I'm the only one talking about it. And I kind of like the idea of offering unique subject matter. Now, it's kind of funny because I don't know when Michael Bailey is planning to release this episode, so I don't want to take the risk of spoiling something. But you'll know it when you hear it. Um, He's going to have Scott Rifen on his show um, to talk about something, uh, a particular comic book miniseries. And as luck would have it, they recorded that, and again, I don't know what the release r- the release dates are for this and how those break down. But <clears throat> um, he and Scott Rifen recorded their stuff about that comic book miniseries within days of me and Sean Engel recording our show about it. Basically, there's going to be a sh- there is or has been or soon will be at the time as as I record this. The show hasn't actually come out yet, but coming soon, I've got a um, a show with. Uh, Sean Angle in it, wherein he and I talk about a, a comic book miniseries, right? Unbeknownst to us, just a few days after he and I recorded that, Michael Bailey and Scott Rifen got together to record a show of views from the long box about that exact same fucking thing. And so, I mention this to say that, it, obviously, it's a complete coincidence. Obviously, I had no idea that Bailey was going to do that, and he had no idea what I was up to. It really is a fucking coincidence, but it's one of it, it's sort of an occupational hazard. Whenever you talk about comics a lot, this is the kind of thing that can happen. Whereas, like I said, maybe I'm wrong, but to the absolute best extent of my knowledge, nobody else out there is talking about the big book stuff, and that again makes it interesting uh, subject matter for me to talk about because I don't think I have anyone else to compete with. <clears throat> or in the case of Michael Bailey, and the views from the long box special that he has coming up with Scott Reifin. I don't have anybody, I don't have another standard to live up to. I don't have to live up to his standard. All I have to do for the big book reports is just live up to my own standard. And if I can say so, I think each big book episode has been better than the last. And so, anyway, that's maybe me blowing my own horn, but I really do feel that way. I think the quality level of it has gone up quite a bit. So, anyway, all of this is my way of saying uh, I'm glad at least that as a fellow podcaster, you understand all this and you. Can relate to it, you know. I, I, of all people, I kind of figured that you'd understand. So, getting back into your email, though, finding things that are fresh or on which you can offer a fresh perspective is part of the creative challenge of podcasting. Here, here. Furthermore, there's a certain amount of professional respect among a, a lot of podcasters, and I, I really appreciate that. And I'm going to put this on pause and say, yeah, I tend to agree with that. There are Superman comics that I have chosen not to talk about right now, because to me, from crisis to crisis is still a little bit too fresh, right? So there are certain storylines that either they haven't gotten to yet, or they've only finished up within the last year or so, and to me, it's just a little too uh, risky for me to, to touch that stuff, and... Uh, talk about it on my show and all of that when it wasn't that long ago that Michael and Jeffrey from uh, from Crisis to Crisis talked about it and so now to be fair this is something that I'm putting upon myself Michael Bailey has come right out and said that he doesn't feel like he and Jeffrey have a monopoly on the burn age Superman if other people want to talk about it go right ahead as far as he's concerned. It's more people talking about Superman, and that's not a bad thing in his opinion. And that, and you know what? That's fine. But the way that I look at it is, to me, I don't want to have to be compared to them when their stuff is so fresh in everybody's mind. And so what I've decided to do, I mean, I'm going to talk about some of that stuff, but the compromise is I'm going to wait a while, a long while, before I talk about um, post-crisis Superman, I'm going to wait a long while until after they've done it. So if they haven't covered it on their show yet, I'm not going to cover it on mine. I'm not going to do it until way after people have had a chance to listen to their stuff. And then maybe I'll throw something together and record my thoughts about it. So, so that's pretty much uh, the way I wanted to handle it. And, honestly, I'm not asking for the same type of professional courtesy. Like, if somebody else wants to do the big books or something, I'm not asking for that. That's just kind of the way I feel about it. I want to at least be seen like I'm doing original stuff, feel like I'm doing original stuff. And that's... If there's another way to do podcasting, I haven't figured it out. Because nobody wants to be thought of as a copycat hack. So, anyway. Going back to Tom's email, though. Sorry for such a mammoth email here, but... (laughs) considering how much I've talked about it. No, dude, you've got nothing to apologize for. Um, But I wanted to pay some overdue respect. Well, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. I've got plenty of episodes left to go before I'm caught up, and I look forward to all of them. Um, So thank you, Tom. I appreciate you saying all of that. And honestly, I kind of like long emails because that gives me a lot to talk about. So to you, Tom, and to everybody else listening, you want to send me a long email? Fucking, by all means, please. All right? I... Obviously, I like talking, I like hearing myself talk, and I like reading these long emails because, honestly, you know, there are usually so many ideas in here, so many different things for me to talk about, that there's a lot of stuff going that, you know, is just, it's basically good for content, really, is what I'm saying. So, anyway, Tom writes, P.S., I first learned about the the monster in Lake Champlain a few years ago because a a passage about it showed up on the Virginia Standards of Learning test for reading. I'm not kidding, and then he provides a link for it. Honestly, that I did not know, and I wasn't, and in fact, I'm still not really, like, an expert about the Lake Champlain monster or anything. I don't really know what the story is there. I can tell you, you know, my default stance here is going to be one of skepticism, but that's not dismissive or snooty. I'm just saying that, you know, generally, things like this prove to be a hoax, and, There are reasons for that. So anyway, but either way, Tom, thank you very much. I appreciate you uh, taking the time to write in, taking the time to listen, and to express your thoughts. And also, like I said before, for writing that iTunes review that I talked about in a previous episode, I really appreciate you taking the time to do that. And um, so I think that's pretty much it for feedback this time around. So... um, I just want to encourage everybody, just send me some more uh, email if you can. I'm always looking for more. You can contact me at Magnus at gmail.com. That's T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S at gmail.com. You can also file uh, iTunes reviews. My feed is called... Two True Freaks Presents Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. That's Two True Freaks Presents Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Just search for it in iTunes and uh, file your uh, reviews there. I'm always looking for more reviews. And the reason I keep kind of bitching about that is because I've got a new feed now. Now, there is a feed out there called Trentus Magnus Punches Reality that relates to my old Libsyn account, which is dead and gone, so there's really no point in filing iTunes reviews there, but for the iTunes feed, Two True Freaks Presents Trenus Magnus Punches Reality, that's my feed right now, and that's the one that needs your your feedback, so if you could uh, please go to uh, iTunes and uh, file a review for me there, basically it's going to help me become more visible in iTunes, so that's pretty much that, so anyway, like I said, send me an email, file an iTunes review, and it's going to get read on this On this show, and in fact, all iTunes reviews are going to get read on this show. But if you don't want your email to be read on this show on Mike, um, just basically make sure to say so somewhere in in the email, right? Say not to not meant to be read on the show. I'm not. I won't say who because he said this isn't supposed to be read on the show, and I take that extremely literally. Somebody sent me an email and basically said. They had some feedback for me, and they did not intend for this to be read on the show, and so it hasn't been. So that's that. So uh, I do respect your privacy if you ask for it, but only if you ask for it. So that's that. So otherwise, I think that's it. Bye, everybody, and I'll talk to you next week. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners, and also see notifications of new episodes when I've put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S-M-A-G-N-U-S-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S. M-A-G-N-U-S. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any you'd like us to read on your behalf and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode with your message read in the show's opener it's that easy and there's no minimum donation be a show sponsor today if you shop at amazon.com please consider using the link at 2truefreaks.com to shop there If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the two true freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play, keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsicore of Milan, Italy.